Good morning. Uh, welcome you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have come to, to worship our God and welcome those of you in the sanctuary, those who are following us uh, by live stream. You notice things are a little bit different up here as we're preparing for our cantatum uh, this afternoon at 3 o'clock and then this evening at 6 o'clock. Let's see, a number of things I want to say. We have tickets for both, uh, even for the 6 o'clock. Uh, Mark Stott, who's probably back there in the narthex, has tickets. He's scalping tickets. And you can see him after the service, and he'll have them for both services. Um, also, for those of you who are going to be live streaming tonight and you have not picked up a program, um, we're going to put out uh, copies of the programs under the portico on the bench. You can drive by sometime today and uh, pick up your copy. You certainly will want that to, to follow along. And then let's note communion. As you'll note, uh, we're having communion today. If you did not get your, your cup, uh, those cups are back there uh, in the narthex, and you'll need them for the communion service. All right, let's uh, prepare our hearts for worship. We have ladies from the um, women's ministry, from their council, who are going to light the Advent candle. Scripture reading is from Luke 1, 41 and 42. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she explained with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Our Father, we thank you for your blessing of Mary with the fruit of Jesus Christ. Thank you for your blessing of all women and all men who bear the fruit of the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.
from Luke, from the Nativity story, we read of the angels. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. We come, our great God, with these angels to give glory to your name for the reason that they gave glory to your name. And that is to birth the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We come to worship you through him and in his name. We pray for the anointing of your Holy Spirit. That as we lift up our own voices of praise and thanksgiving to glorify you. That you will receive uh, this worship. That it will be acceptable in your sight, be pleasing to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Hark the herald angels sing. to give an announcement. Uh, we're st- we have adopted uh, families in Clarkston, uh, f- uh, families who are refugees, and uh, you have opportunity to, to give uh, gifts for that. Made copies uh, of what we're looking for and I place them in the Welcome Center. 
So I encourage you, if you would like to give to this project, just after the service, go over to the Welcome Center, and you can see what we're doing. It'll have on there the email address of Jan Murray, who's heading up this project. Now, for our Confession of Faith, we're using the Heidelberg Catechism. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and death? That I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. What must you know to live and die in the joy of this comfort? Three things. First, how great my sin and misery are. Second, how I am set free from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to thank God for such deliverance. Let's now pray to the Lord using the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And our Father, we give you praise as the one who dwells in heaven. You are the one true God who is the creator of all that there is. We pray that this very morning that we will honor your name and our worship of you. We pray for your kingdom to come through our Lord Jesus Christ and that we would be found faithful in the service of your kingdom. We will seek to do your will on earth as it is in heaven, not only in in our actions, but in our very thoughts. We pray that we may show forth your character, both holiness and of mercy. We pray that you would give to us our daily bread, that you would give us the bread of your word this morning that you would feed us by your word, that you would feed us with your sacrament. We pray for those who are ill. We pray for their healing. We pray for your work and those whom we love and care much for. We pray, our Father, for the uh, success of the the vaccine being produced. We pray that um, they will be successful in uh, bringing to an end this pandemic. We pray that you would forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors, particularly to forgive our debt, in which we tend to to hold on to grudges, hold on to resentments, make us more and more to have that spirit of our Father who is merciful uh, to both the wicked and the righteous. May we have that same spirit about us. Keep us from temptation, deliver us from Satan, 
uh, from this world, even from our own weak flesh. And we make this prayer acknowledging that to you belongs the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Well, I invite you to turn with me now in your Bibles to Matthew 2, verses 1 through 12. And you'll also find that text in the bulletin insert. Other than the uh, Holy Family themselves, I suppose any nativity set that you're going uh, to see in in a home that you're going to have, you're going to have three sets of characters. You're going to have the shepherds. You're going to have at least one angel. And then you will have the three wise men. Now, I was thinking about these characters. The shepherds invoke in us a kind of a, a domestic feeling in the sense that they're, they're common people like us. We can easily identify with them. Then there are the angels who evoke awe. They are wondrous characters radiating the glory of God. And then there are those three wise men, all dressed up and coming on camels. And they're the mysterious characters. They're, they're splendorous. Though they're human, they're not, they're not quite like us in the sense that those shepherds are, although we aspire to be like them. Well, these are the men of faith, these three wise, well, however many wise men there are. These wise men are the ones whom we're going to consider this morning. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. Now, after... Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. So again, here appears the most mysterious of all the characters who are associated with the birth of Jesus. All we know of them, they are wise men, from the east. Exactly where? Exactly what kind of persons that they are? Well, they have provided scholars with a lot of opportunity to do research and do what they like best, debate about them. Now, most scholars over time have come to regard them as likely coming from from Babylon or from Persia, from that area that was beyond the Euphrates. They're not kings. Everyone pretty much agrees to that, as portrayed by the Christmas carol. They may well have been counselors to kings, to rulers. And um, maybe some scholars even think that they were king makers in the sense that no one could rise to become a ruler without their approval. They were possibly of a priestly order. And most likely, their expertise, of course, lies in astronomy or astrology. They were students of the heavens. And now we know that it is a star that has brought them to Jerusalem. But we might ask the question, why Jerusalem? You know, it would not have been odd to associate this bright manifestation, whether it's a star or star or alignment of planets or comet, whatever it may be, it would not have been unusual to associate it with the birth of a great personage, and maybe a great ruler. But how would they have figured out to come to Jerusalem? Well, they were likely not only students of the heavens, but of ancient writings, and including those of the Jews. 
Now, let's recall where the, the Jews of Judah were sent into exile. They were sent to Babylon, into that whole region of Persia, that empire. Think about Daniel. Uh, think about Meshach and Shadrach and Abednego. These were men who rose to be what? To be royal advisors. Now, we know that, you know, the people returned 70 years later, but not all of them. Probably most of them remained in that area as colonies. And the wise men of that day, the Magi, would have had much opportunity to study their scriptures, probably study them with their rabbis. Now, here are passages that very likely would have sparked their interest. From Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. These were students of the stars. Or maybe from Isaiah 40. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. They would have known that through their own studies. Now, no doubt, as wise men, as as men of great intellect, they would have been attracted to the Jewish monotheistic faith, that is, the worship, the belief that there is but one God. I mean, there's no other religion with such a high view of God, particularly of a sovereign God, who is the one creator of all of those stars, the universe, the earth, and of all of the nations. And furthermore, they had to be impressed with what they read about social justice, what they read about a moral righteousness. Again, there's no other religion that comes that came close uh, to the Jewish religion of upholding a high view of God. But what would then have caught their imagination would have been this Jewish hope for the Messiah. There was going to be a king who would rise and be established as the, the over the kingdom of God that would spread over the earth. I can't help but think that Isaiah 9 had to capture their imagination. For to us, a child is born. To us, a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold him with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. And then there's this passage in Isaiah that really would have clued them in about the star. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will be seen upon you. And nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And so this 
bright manifestation has appeared to them. This light has come. And they are of those from other nations. And so you have the combination of the scriptures with their own study of the stars easily would have led them to the conclusion that that great light in the heavens, that was prefiguring, that was telling them that the child has been born. Now, of course, this all happens with the work of the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit who brings them that knowledge, the Spirit who gives them that faith to believe. And so they take that long journey westward until they arrive in the land of the Messiah. And it would, a natural thing for them would have been then to go to Jerusalem. Where else would a king be born? There in the city of David. They have a conference with Herod. He sends them on to Bethlehem based on the prophecy of another prophet, that of Micah. So look with me now. We're going to go down to verse 9. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. As you know, there's a lot of speculation about this star. I remember years ago and Years ago, going to a lecture at the local observatory, and that presented a view. I'm told that uh, this alignment of Saturn and Jupiter on December the 21st, that could have been that. Uh, it could have been a meteor, comet, whatever it could be. Some scholars conclude that it actually doesn't have anything to do with astronomy. It has to do with what is called a theophany. You remember in the wilderness, what led the people through the wilderness was a theophany. It was that pillar of cloud in the day and of fire in the evening. And my own guess, this could easily have been both. They first saw that uh, sign up there in the sky telling them the birth of a child. Then after they get to Jerusalem, we're told it appears again. And it leads them directly not only to Bethlehem, but to the family. But whatever the case, the point of the story is what the Magi did when they arrived. Look with me again now in verses 10 to 12. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. You know, I can't help but be reminded, you know, since we've been going through Hebrews, of thinking of Melchizedek. Remember him back in chapter 7? He's that mysterious character. He suddenly appears on the scene with, uh, there with Abraham, and then he disappears. Never hear from him again until you get to Psalm 110 and makes an obscure reference to him. Then nothing. Nothing till we get to our Hebrews writer who makes a big deal about him. Now, like them, the Magi will never be heard again. Never. They, they come from some unclear location. They leave without making a mark. Not in the Gospels, not in the rest of the New Testaments, nowhere. And they only do one thing. 
They worship the child. That giving of the gifts, that's part of their worship. That's their sacrifice they're making to that child. Now contrast them with Herod. Look with me again at our text. We'll go back down to verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. When you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. And we know the story of Herod, how he's deceitful, he has wicked intention, and time later will actually massacre the children. Now, you think about the contrast here. You have the Magi come from a long distance for a king to do what? To worship. You have the nearby king who searches for what? A rival to destroy. You know, I find it fascinating that Herod evidently believes the prophet about Bethlehem. I mean, does he think then that he can outwit the Lord God? You know, see, you got him trying to undo the scriptures. And you have the wise men, who are not Jews, come from a long distance, and they believe the prophecy of those Jewish scriptures, and it causes them to want to worship him and to follow his teachings. Well, as we did last Sunday with Simeon and Annam, we're going to take these magi, these wise men, and we're going to put them over into Hebrews 11. That great chapter of faith. Now, how would our author have used them, used them as an illustration? Well, he may have paired them up with Abraham and said, look, by faith, the wise men left their homeland to travel into a foreign country, into what was the land of promise. And by faith, they believed that promise, the promise of the Messiah. And they searched for him. And so, likewise, the lesson for us. We ought to search for the Messiah, for Christ. Now, the obvious point, the way you might want to respond is say, well, we have found him. That's, that's why we're here. And that's true. But there is a sense in which we need to understand that once we have found him, we spend the rest of our life searching and understanding him finding him even more, more deeply. Think about the Jesus' disciples, for example. They found him, and they followed him as the Messiah. Even so, they, they never got it. They never fully understood what being the Messiah entailed. And so you have Peter. He makes this great confession of Jesus being the Christ, being uh, the Son of God, and And right after he does that, he rebukes Jesus because Jesus begins to talk about his suffering and death. And he says, you should not talk like that. Or even after Jesus' resurrection, they still don't get it. 
They think that kingdom, they're waiting for this political kingdom to be set up and they're going to be on, on the thrones and when's it going to happen now? Or even later, after Pentecost. Okay, they, they still having, now they're having trouble understanding that this kingdom actually goes out. Out to the nations. Out to Gentiles. It took them a lifetime. It took them years and so on of understanding more and more who Jesus is. And so their example teaches us that finding Jesus is really just the beginning of a lifelong journey. It's, it's this journey of searching the mystery, the meaning, the implications of who Jesus is, what he has done, how he calls us to live. You know, we, we need to understand that oftentimes we presume to know more than we actually do. I mean, Christians throughout the ages, from the very beginning, they've made this mistake, just like the disciples did. One of the things they do is, is we tend to mix our cultural assumptions with the gospel. And we'll associate certain customs of, of dress, of rituals, of different types of behavioral codes. And we'll elevate that up to the gospel. We think that's it. And it's very easy. It's very easy now. Well, anytime to mix God and country. And you kind of make, mix it together and make it a gospel message. That's how I grew up. I grew up in the South, thought I knew the gospel, and never understood it because of assumptions being made. Now, again, it's been easy for this in every era. It's not unique to us in every country to turn Christ into kind of a, kind of a cultural figure of that time and of that place. Maybe to make him a political figure. Maybe to appeal to him for approval of... Unrighteous things. I mean, there are the ages in which people were killed, were murdered. I mean, were were hung, were were burned to the stake because Christians thought they were honoring God. And we have to examine our own selves. It's easy to oppress thinking that we're honoring God. But I think the biggest tendency for each of us personally, at least for me is I want to turn Jesus into someone who condones pretty much how I live. And, and it's not hard to do that, to make him think, or make me think that he likes the way that I live, how far I've come in knowledge of him. I want to tame him. And that's easy to try to do. We have to remember that the heart, the heart is the most difficult thing to discern. And so to seek Jesus, it includes opening our hearts to be searched by Jesus. We have to remember that Jesus himself and his redemptive work, furthermore, I mean, it is filled with mystery. And we'll spend our lifetime trying to delve further and further into that mystery. And it takes a great deal of mental effort, of study, to search diligently, and even more effort than to be changed by what we learn. So that's one lesson. Keep searching for Jesus. But let's go back to chapter 11. And I think our author could have placed uh, these wise men with another character, with Abel. Remember, Abel's the one who offered a sacrifice. 
that's acceptable to God. And so these magi, these wise men, offered the sacrifice of worship that was pleasing. Now think about this for a moment, about their worship. They traveled a long distance. It's a journey which undoubtedly took many days, maybe months, I I don't know, but surely it was arduous. And if they were not kings, they were at least, we know that they're wealthy men. Most likely they are, well, just as they're called, wise men. They're counselors, maybe of royalty. And they come all this long distance with their wisdom to do what? Worship a child. Offer him these precious gifts. And then they leave. You know, when I was studying this, thinking about this, I recall the statement, most of you will remember this, of the billionaire back in the 90s who made a comment in an interview. He said this, look, just in terms of allocation of time resources, religion is not very efficient. There's a lot more I could be doing on a Sunday morning. Now, from his perspective, he's right. Organized religion is not efficient. I I can assure you of that. No more than, for that matter, the institution of family. And Sunday morning worship is the most inefficient activity of all. Let's just think for a moment about our own church. Our church spends a great deal of resources, so much of the budget, just and, and then going for staffing, then planning, then executing one hour. And you, by the way, you don't even get an hour anymore, you know, just for this, this worship, to do it one time a week. There's so much money, so much time and energy could be diverted to, to practical good causes. I mean, let, let's just right now, right here at this moment, What have you gained from attending? And, you know, it's actually even worse for you guys. Those of you who come here, because you have a preacher who gives very few practical tips on how to do anything. How to be better parents or workers or how to handle all of life's challenge. I I do hope you feel somewhat uplifted. But, hey, there are better preachers, I have to admit, on TV. You can go online. Um, indeed, you really could have saved a lot of time if you had just stayed home. I'm not talking about those live streaming. You just stayed home, put together your best preachers, your best music, and feel really good. Let's go back to these wise men. Was there anything more inefficient than this trip of these wise men. Now, the gifts, they no doubt would have proved to be useful. I mean, you know, the Holy Family, they end up going, going into Egypt. But the only reason they're going into Egypt is because the wise men put them in danger. What did they accomplish? All they did was worship. And that undoubtedly was the reason God showed them that star, and led them to Jesus. To worship Jesus, God the Son. 
to worship God the Father through God the Son. It is for such purpose that we have been created and for which we have been redeemed. You know, those mysterious magi, really more than anyone else, represent us. We're told in Ephesians, Apostle Paul refers to us, we're, we're Gentiles, as people who were far off, who were strangers and, and aliens to the household of God. But what? Who now have been brought near. We've been made members of God's household. For what purpose? That we might worship him. And so, we heed from Psalm 89. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come. For what purpose? Worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. To glorify our God. That is the reason for which we remain. The reason for which Jesus has come. We give you praise, our God. That you are the only God and the God who is worthy to be worshipped. Oh, fill our hearts by your Holy Spirit. All the more work in us to have the heart of these magi, these wise men. Who will travel any distance, go through any length to search you out. To know the depths of your greatness and to worship you. Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let's stand and we'll sing together. Uh, What child is this? The first two verses, you'll see it as an insert in your bulletin.
We read the words of the institution of the Lord's Supper as it comes to us from 1 Corinthians. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. If we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes, we also proclaim the Lord's birth when he came. And this table is to remind us that he did come. And what he did, that he took on our flesh. And in our flesh, He offered up the sacrifice of himself. He brought redemption by bringing himself. So he calls us to remember him. And never to forget what he has done. Never forget that he is coming, but also never forget that he is still present. He said that I will be with you always to the ends of the age. And he has given this institution to remind us that he is ever present with us now. Now, this meal, this uh, sacrament, is for those who acknowledge what I have just said and have proclaimed. If you have not yet called upon Jesus Christ as your Lord, your Savior, your, your King, we ask you that you not partake, but know that it is our ardent prayer someday that you will be with us at this table. Let's pray. Father, we, we lift up our time before you now. We lift up these elements. Thank you for them. All the more now, use them, our Father, to speak to us, to feed us with our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, blessed, and broke it, and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take heed, this is my body given for you. You'll take your cup and and now the body of Christ given for you. In the same manner, our Savior also took the cup. After having given thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, This cup is a new covenant in my blood which is shed for the forgiveness of sins. Drink all ye of it. Blood of Christ. We give you praise, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ. We give you praise for his incarnation by which he took upon himself our very flesh and in that flesh made atonement for our sins upon the cross. We thank you that though he died and was buried, yet he rose again. And in him we look to our own resurrection. We give you praise that in that flesh he ascended on high, where he serves now as our high priest. We give you thanks for that promise. We believe that he will someday return again in that flesh, in glory. We say, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. The last verse of what child is this?
the cantata at 3 o'clock and at 6 o'clock. There are tickets still for both. March stuck. There are three tickets for 6 o'clock? No. There's only tickets for... He's doing a hand motion. I'm trying to... <laughs> only tickets for the 3 o'clock. All right. Okay. And... Um, if, uh, if you cannot come, you want to live stream, we, we do have programs uh, out there as well. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forevermore. Amen.